Good to see you guys this morning. My name is Kent. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you, I'm one of our pastors here. I'd love the opportunity to meet you before you leave uh, if we haven't met yet. But if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, no worries. You can use one of ours. There should be one in the rack underneath a seat nearby. Uh, If you're using one of our Bibles, the page number should be on the screen behind me. Um, We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 here in just a bit. Uh, but before we get there, I wanted to talk to you about something completely unrelated to Luke chapter 1. Is that okay? Yeah, some people are very excited and don't even know where this is going yet, right? Um, I love the enthusiasm. We need that, all right? It's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I love it. Uh, so here's what I wanted to mention to you. So uh, some of you guys are aware of uh, what's called the 10-year challenge or the decade challenge going around on Facebook and Instagram right now. Uh, most of you guys have probably seen it. If you haven't seen it, uh, basically the idea is that you post a picture of yourself from 10 years ago, and then you post a current picture of yourself. And I'm not really sure what the goal is. I guess it's either to like embarrass yourself or flatter yourself, depending on how proud you are or not proud you are of the changes that you've made over the past 10 years. But people are doing this on Facebook, Instagram, all sorts of social media platforms. And so the reason I bring that up is because I figured I would try my hand at it uh, this year. And just because I didn't want to be the only person embarrassed by it, uh, I drug Jeff, one of our other pastors, into it as well. Um, So something that you guys should know is that Jeff and I have been friends for a very long time. We were friends well before we started this church together. Uh, And so it was not a problem at all to find a picture from 10 years ago of Jeff and I. So here is what I posted for my decade challenge. Yeah. It's a very endearing photo of me and Jeff, I feel like. Uh, Believe it or not, that hair is not photoshopped on. We actually thought that was a good idea at the time. And so that's Jeff and I from 10 years ago. And then obviously, uh, right before we opened uh, this building uh, just a few weeks back. So uh, I did that. And then Jeff, not to be outdone, uh, posted his own picture of him and I from 10 years ago. I figure I'll let you guys take a look at it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, your laughs indicate that most of you realize that top picture is not actually a photo of me and Jeff. Uh, That is from the most recent movie, Spider-Man, and that's Spider-Man and his sidekick in the movie. Um, Here's what's interesting, though. I think Jeff posted that picture assuming that everybody would just know, oh, this is a joke, this is sarcastic, this is not actually a picture of us from 10 years ago. That, in fact, was not the case. Uh, If you go on Facebook and see where Jeff posted this picture, there were actually several people who indicated in their comments that they didn't know it was a joke. Uh, They said things like, oh my gosh, that doesn't even look like Jeff, or I can't believe that that's Kent in the photo. And so here's what I thought would be fun. Um, If you guys want to, Go to this post on Jeff's Facebook page. I think it's public. I don't even know that you have to like add us as friends or whatever, but feel free to add Jeff as a friend, you know? Um, and if you could just go on to this post and, and add some comments that indicate you think it is a real photo too <laughs> and just pile on the joke, that would be great. So things like, oh my gosh, I forgot Jeff used to look like this. 
Or, uh, man, I remember being here for this photo. That's so incredible that you found it. If you guys could just get in on the fun with us, I think it would be a lot of fun. And nothing quite says the holidays like deceiving people on the internet, right? (laughs) And so if you guys just want to join in on that, I thought that would be fun. Uh, No reason for mentioning it other than that. So on a similar note, Jesus Uh, from the Bible. I should have thought through that transition. Uh, So Luke chapter one is where we're going to be at today. Um, If you weren't here last week, we began a new teaching series called Not What You'd Expect. And this is our Christmas series. It'll lead us all the way up to the Sunday before Christmas. Um, This series is really, as the series title indicates, the Christmas story is really an interesting animal when you think about it. The original story of the original Christmas in the Bible, when you give it an honest, unfiltered reading, it is nearly at every turn in the narrative precisely not what you would expect it to be as the story of the coming Messiah. Now, you and I don't always pick up on that fact because we read it hundreds of years later and we're kind of already familiar with some of the details. But at the time, to anybody watching this story play out at the time, it was unfamiliar, it was unpredictable, and it was very, very unexpected at most every turn. For instance, last week specifically, we looked at Jesus' lineage, this genealogy, also known as the strange, somewhat dry list of ancient names at the beginning of the book of Matthew. But what we discovered last week is that this lineage that Jesus comes from was no ordinary Lineage, that it has far more to say to us today than we might imagine at first reading. So if you missed that, feel free to go back and grab the podcast online. Today, though, we are going to hop into the book of Luke. And what we're going to do is meet our very first unlikely character from the story of the first Christmas. We're going to spend some time getting to know Mary, the mother of Jesus, this morning. Now, Whether you've been around church much in your life or not, you are probably aware that Mary is a fairly central piece of the Christmas story. One reason for that is that she kind of serves as this example, this model of faith in the story. But secondly, you might be familiar with her story specifically because of the famous virgin birth. Part of what makes this story unusual is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, becomes pregnant as a virgin, which is not the way that most pregnancies begin. So I know that sometimes when Christians just gloss right over details like that in the Bible, it can make the Bible very difficult to get on board with, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible. So if you're here and you have doubt or skepticism about that claim or claims like that one in the Bible, We first off want to tell you that our community is absolutely a safe place to have doubts and questions about the Bible and about faith in general. And so know that if you are brand new to church or the claims of Christianity, we're not expecting you to just instantaneously get on board with details like this in the Bible. Because that's not what happened for most of us who are Christians. Most of us did not just start following Jesus and immediately stop wrestling with the difficult claims in the Bible. For most of us, following Jesus actually began a long process of wrestling and re-wrestling with claims like that. And I know it's not always the message that gets communicated in church settings, but hear me say that it is okay to have faith and still wrestle with questions 
about your faith. That is totally okay in the kingdom of God. And what we're going to see in today's passage, I think, is that it's actually ironic to believe that faith and asking questions are opposed to one another. It's ironic that we believe that. Because Mary, in the story, the shining example of faith that the Bible puts forward in this narrative, Mary has plenty of questions, and she asks those questions. She receives some unbelievable news, and she responds not with blind faith, as it is often called, but she responds with honest, questioning, thoughtful, investigative faith. That's how Mary responds in the story. And in the Bible, that's actually what faith is more often than not. It's not taking everything at face value. It's not being gullible about somewhat unbelievable things. It's honestly thinking and processing through it. Faith, according to the Bible, is choosing deliberately to trust God even in spite of your questions and even in the midst of them often. It's a willingness to wade through doubts and difficulties rather than jumping ship at the first sight of them. That's more often what the Bible means when it talks about faith. And I think our story today, the story about Mary, bears that out in a number of different ways. So today, in the story of Mary's not-so-planned pregnancy, I think we discover a lot about what faith is and maybe just as importantly what faith is not. So let's take a look at it all, starting in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So here's our introduction. In short, an angel shows up on the scene to talk with a woman named Mary who is pledged to be married to a guy named Joseph. Here's what happens, verse 28 in the passage. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But Mary, catch this next part of the story, Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So notice Mary's initial response to the angel's appearance in front of her is not, Oh, lovely, an angel, just what I expected to see in my everyday life. That's not how Mary responds. No, she sees something out of the ordinary for her, and she responds as if it is something out of the ordinary. She responds like we would expect any rational person to respond. She tries to figure out what is happening in front of her. In the passage, that word discern, that she tried to discern what type of greeting this might be, That word in the original language more literally means to make an audit. So Mary in the story is intensely rational. She tries to figure out what it is that's happening before her eyes and ears. Mary apparently is not the naive, gullible type of person, at least not in this story. She's a rational thinking person. I want you to see that. Additionally, I want you to pay really careful attention to the language that it uses in verse 29. It says that Mary was troubled, but what was she troubled by specifically? Because it's actually not by the angel himself. That's not what she's troubled by. It says she was troubled, quote, by the saying. What bothered her was what the angel said when he showed up. Now, what he said, according to the passage, 
is greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, why would she be troubled by that? I, I don't know about you, but if someone came up to me, Kent Bateman, and said, hey, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you, the Lord favors you, I would respond by going, why, thank you, I always knew the Lord felt that way about me, Right? That would not bother me all that much. That would not trouble me to hear someone say that. That seems like great news to hear, so why is Mary bothered by what the angel says? I think it's worth noting that in Mary's day, people believed that if you were, quote, favored by God, you would know because of how financially well off you were, much like some people actually still believe today, in fact. In other words, if God favored you, your wallet and your bank account should reflect that. People believed this about how blessing and favor worked, despite it not exactly being true and despite God trying to tell them over and over again that that's not how he works. But in the story, what you need to know is that Mary was not financially well off, not at all, in fact. She was anything but wealthy. In fact, she was quite Poor. We're told later in the story that her and her husband Joseph, when they go to the temple, they offer two turtle doves or pigeons as a sacrifice at the temple, which is what people would offer if they were too poor to afford the lamb, the actual sacrifice that was recommended. So when this angel comes to Mary in her poverty, probably extreme poverty, and says to her, you are favored, God is with you, Mary, her gut response was probably to go, oh no, you've got the wrong girl. There's no way. There's no way that's me. God does not favor me. That's not who I am. That's not my story. That is likely why Mary is so bothered, is so troubled by what the angel said. And to be honest, when she hears the next thing that the angel is about to say, she's probably going to wish that he had the wrong girl. Take a look at verse 30 with me. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, you have to wonder if at this point in the story, Mary is thinking to herself, okay, so you're telling me I'm about to be an unwed, pregnant mother in a hyper-conservative, hyper-religious society, and you want me not to be afraid? It's a very odd way to make someone not afraid in this society. But that is the news that she's given by the angel. That she's going to give birth to a son and that his name is to be Jesus. And it's not just any baby that this baby is going to be. Look at verse 32 with me. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, these details about who Jesus would be and what he was coming to do, they may not mean much to us today other than just them sounding familiar, but they would have been clues to Mary in her day. As a young Jewish woman, Mary would have been familiar with most of this information that one day this king was going to come, this long-awaited Messiah for the nation of Israel that would sit on the throne of David forever and ever and that he would be the savior and the advocate that the nation of Israel had been waiting for for so many years. So that idea itself is not lost on Mary. She's somewhat familiar with those details. 
What she probably didn't expect, though, was that that king would come as a baby in her own womb. That much was new information to Mary. It was a new development. The news that the angel delivers to a skeptical Mary is, you're about to become pregnant, you will give birth to a son, and his name will be Jesus, and he will be the Messiah, the king that your nation has been waiting on. It's a rather intense thing to hear if you are Mary. But again here, Mary is actually very rational with her response to the angel. Take a look at verse 34 with me. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Somebody paid attention in biology class, right? Mary is aware that there is a certain very important part of becoming pregnant that she has not participated in just yet. And so she asked the angel, how will this be? How could this possibly be since that is what's true of me and my story? I think sometimes we look back on stories in the Bible and we just assume that they didn't ask questions back then because they were way more gullible than we are, right? Like sometimes that's the temptation. I think the temptation is to read accounts like this one of the virgin birth and go, well, of course they believed that a virgin could get pregnant back then. They were just so much less educated and so much less informed than we are today. But here's the thing. Believe it or not, virgins didn't get pregnant back then either, right? I think they were clear on that much about biology. I think they knew that at this point in human history. I think... I think they knew that, that they were just as skeptical as we would be today, as this story and most stories in the Bible would seem to indicate. They are just as intuitive as we are today. So Mary asked the question in the story that anyone else would ask back then or in today's world. She says, uh, how's that going to work exactly? What you said doesn't make sense to me, and so I'm going to need more information about this news that you're delivering to me. Growing up, I feel like the version of this story that I had in my head from like all the Christmas plays that I was a part of, and yes, I was a part of Christmas plays, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I was a part of them, but I was a part of them and watched Christmas plays. I feel like the version of this story that I had in my head was something like, Mary, you're pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And Mary says, okay, that sounds totally normal to me. That's not what happened in the story though. It's like we often gloss right over the fact that this was a dialogue between Mary and the angel where she asked questions, she was skeptical, she wanted more information, and so she asked for more information. That's exactly what it was in the story. So Mary asks, how can this be? Now let's take a look at the angel's response. Keep reading in verse 35 in the passage. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So this baby in Mary's womb, he's going to be the very Son of God himself, is what the angel says. The Son of God that will come on a rescue mission to seek and save what was lost in the story of Israel and the story of the entire world. He will eventually die on a cross in people's place for their sins. It's a very intense idea for Mary to hear about this baby that she's going to give birth to. But take a look at what the angel follows all of that information with in verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. 
And this is the sixth month with, with, with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So the angel doesn't say, Mary, you're just going to have to get on board with this. This is the way that it is, so have faith and believe it. That's not what the angel says next. He reasons with her. That's what the angel does. He reasons with her. He gives her evidence, so to speak, of the news that he's announcing. He says, Mary, I know this is unbelievable to you, so let me give you something to go on. Your relative Elizabeth is also somewhat inexplicably pregnant as we speak, so even though everything I've just told you seems impossible to you, seems difficult to believe, as proof that God can accomplish the impossible, Elizabeth is also miraculously pregnant as we speak. He says, go, go verify this. You, you can talk to your relative Elizabeth and see that she is also pregnant as well. Now, I want us to camp out on that story for just a bit, the story about Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, because there's actually something really interesting happening in the Bible in how these two parallel storylines play out together. So you've got the story of Mary and Joseph on one hand, and then you've got the story of Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, and they're both kind of happening at the same time. So background to that story, earlier in Luke chapter 1, Elizabeth and Zechariah get the news that they are also pregnant, and this also is a very unexpected pregnancy to begin with. But for them, it is because they are both, quote, advanced in years. Now, we don't know what age that means that they are, but think at least grandparents' age, if not great-grandparents' age. So just imagine if at Christmas you see your grandparents and they say, hey guys, we have some news that we'd like to share with you. That's how odd this was, right? How out of place, how unexpected it was. And not only that, but we're told that Elizabeth and Zechariah had always struggled with infertility. They had no children. So suffice it to say, them finding out that they were pregnant was very unexpected in their day-to-day -day life. But what happens, in part because of all of that, is that when Zechariah, the father, receives this news that this is going to happen to them, Zechariah is not having it at all. He won't believe it. He's cynical, he's jaded about it all, and he says to the angel delivering the news, essentially, yeah, I don't think so. Not us. Not at this point in our story. And because he responds that way, it says that God silences him until the day that his son is born. Makes him entirely mute for nine months. Now, here's what's so interesting about that story. And the reason I give you all of that background on that story that we're not primarily looking at today. Zechariah was a priest by profession. He was a priest meaning it was his job to go into the temple on behalf of God's people and burn incense. He was this go-between between God and the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel there in the, in the world. So his job was to represent God, which means on some level he was an example of faith. He was an example of what it looked like to walk by faith and trust in God. Zechariah, though, when he hears this news about God opening his wife's womb and accomplishing the impossible and giving them a child, Zechariah, this example of faith, refuses to believe it. And meanwhile, in a village somewhere, 
a poor teenage girl named Mary finds out that she is pregnant as, as a virgin and she believes it. Do you see the contrast in the passage? It's not that Mary doesn't have questions. It's not that she doesn't ask those questions. It's not that she isn't confused by the situation. But yet her posture, Mary's posture, is one of belief, while Zechariah, the priest's posture, is one of stubborn doubt. In the story, when God wants to highlight a model of faith and walking with God, he chooses a young, unwed, pregnant teenage mother. Are you beginning to see why the Bible says elsewhere things like God uses the weak things in the world to shame the strong? This is how God operates. It's precisely not what we would expect again. Zechariah is supposed to be the example of faith in the story, not Mary. But in the story we read, it's Mary who's the example of faith. And we see Mary's faith front and center in verse 38. Verse 38 says this, and in, in response to all of that, Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is a beautiful response from Mary to the angel. Mary, who I'm sure has questions and doubts still swirling around in her mind, responds with the simple statement of faith, I am the Lord's servant. If you say this will happen, I believe you that it will happen. But my point, which you've probably picked up on by now, is this. Mary's faith is not blind, not by any stretch of the imagination. At nearly every point in the story, she asks questions, she investigates, she looks into things, she wants to find out more. In fact, she takes almost nothing in the story at face value. For Mary, this model of faith in the Bible, it's clear that faith is not an absence of questions. It's not the absence of questions, but rather an honest wrestling with her questions. Even as Mary wrestles to believe, she follows, she trusts, she listens, she takes the next step of obedience. That is what the life of faith is meant to look like. So let's take a step back and attempt to bring everything that we just heard, everything that we just witnessed into our setting today. If our goal is faith, and I'm assuming if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus in the room, that's our goal, right? That's what we're shooting for. If your goal is faith, what can we learn about what faith is from the story of Mary? Or maybe to put it more pointedly, how do we respond to difficult things in our faith the way that Mary did and not the way that Zechariah did? Mary and Zechariah in the story were both faced with very surprising, very unbelievable information from an angel. Both of them struggled to believe it, but Mary apparently responded in faith while Zechariah did not. So what's the difference, practically speaking, between the two characters? I think there are at least two things that we can take away from this story and the Bible in general about what it means to walk by faith, and specifically what faith is and what faith isn't. First, I think we can learn that faith is open-minded, not closed-minded. Faith is open-minded, not closed-minded. On the surface, Mary's response to the angel and Zechariah's response to the angel might seem very similar 
to us. If you go back and read the story of Zechariah, he responds to the angel by saying, how do I know this is true? And Mary says, how can this be? Those sound almost identical on the surface, right? Sound like different versions of the same thing. But in fact, their responses were worlds apart. Mary's words were from a place of trust, but a trust that had questions. Zechariah's words, on the other hand, were laced with distrust and cynicism towards God. Zechariah could not see outside of the categories that he had set up in his mind. I'm an old man, we don't have kids, and my wife is infertile, and there's no way that God would intervene in the midst of all of that. That's what Zechariah believes. He cannot see out of the categories that he's set up in his head. But Mary, on the other hand, says, hey, I want to believe, but I need help. Can you help me? Can you give me more information? In other words, Mary's faith was open-minded while Zechariah's was not. This was closed-minded. You know, when we talk about doubt, which is obviously very connected to faith in a lot of ways, It helps to know that there are actually two different kinds of doubt out there. One type of doubt is like Mary's, a person who honestly wants to keep an open mind to things outside of her categories, and she just wrestles with what that looks like to do that practically, or how it could happen, how it could come to pass exactly in her life. That's one type of doubt. But there's another type of doubt, too, what the Bible more often refers to as unbelief, if you've heard that term. Unbelief is closed-minded and stubborn. It refuses to believe anything outside of its pre-existing categories at all. I think one example of the latter kind of doubt is a guy by the name of Stephen Hawking. If you don't know Stephen Hawking, he's this absolutely brilliant thinker passed away just a few years ago. He spent nearly his entire life theorizing about how the universe worked through studying space and time and matter. That is what he did for a living. They actually made a movie based on his life a few years back called A Theory of Everything. Some of you guys may have heard of that. Absolutely brilliant guy. But back in 1998, Stephen Hawking packed out an 1,100-seat auditorium at Caltech to give a lecture on his theorizing about the universe, to give a lecture about relativity and quantum physics. And while he was there, I mean, he just waxed eloquent about all the things that the universe does and all the things he's thinking on and all the things he's researching. And he went on for, I think, an hour or two about all of this information. And at the end of the lecture, he was doing some Q&A with the audience. And at one point, someone asked him the question, does God exist? After a long pause, Hawking answered them somewhat dismissively, I don't answer God questions. I don't answer God questions. Now that is so interesting to me. A, A guy who spends his entire life theorizing about unknown things in the universe and then investigating those things to see if those theories are true or not. A guy who does that for a living and the one thing he refuses to theorize about at all is the one question that has plagued human beings for thousands of years. As brilliant as he was, I think that is an example of the closed-minded type of doubt. The doubt that refuses to believe anything outside of its pre-existing categories. The kind of doubt that shuts down conversations before they even start. 
That is the closed-minded type of doubt. And so all of that to say, if you're here this morning and you would say you have the closed-minded type of doubt, if you absolutely refuse to believe things that are outside of your preconceived categories, if you refuse to believe that things that are hard to believe might in fact be true, that there's a world that exists outside of what you're accustomed to, I've got to warn you, you're not going to get much of anywhere with Jesus or with anything new in your life for that matter. If that's the way you think, if you can't process, process, if you can't even consider things that are outside of your categories, you're not going to get anywhere in regards to much of anything and especially when it comes to faith in Jesus. But if you're here this morning and you would say your doubt is an open-minded type of doubt, If you're coming from a place where you want to keep an open mind, where you might have doubts and questions about the whole Jesus thing, but you honestly are willing to consider that the whole thing might be true, even if it seems difficult to believe, I personally believe if that's where you're at, with everything in me, that God will meet you there. Because that's the place where faith starts. Faith is open-minded, not closed-minded. Second, The second thing I think we can take away from this is that faith is humble, not arrogant. Faith is humble, not arrogant. Second, I want you to notice Mary's final words to the angel in this passage. She says, quote, I am the Lord's servant. That's her parting line. That is what we would call a statement of humility, Right? It reveals a lot about how Mary sees herself in relation to God. What's interesting to me, though, is that Zechariah in the story, who is literally a servant of God, he serves in the temple of God day after day, Zechariah is missing something very important when it comes to faith, and that's humility, the posture of a servant. To honestly wrestle with the realities of faith, some degree of humility is required. In the story, Zechariah sort of sits on his throne and demands that the angel prove things to him. Mary, on the other hand, takes the posture of a servant and says, hey, I have questions, but I'll take you at your word because I'm a servant of the Lord and you are a servant of the Lord. You see, arrogance makes us say, like Zechariah, my position is right until someone comes and proves otherwise. Arrogance says every belief is on trial except for the one that I already hold. Humility, though, like Mary, says everything is subject to questioning, everything is subject to skepticism, even and especially the beliefs that I already hold. You have to be willing to question everything, even yourself, if you're going to understand what it means to walk by faith. I love the way that G.K. Chesterton puts it in one of his books. He says this, In dealing with the arrogant asserter of doubt, it is not the right method to tell him to stop doubting. Now, quick time out there. That's a little bit confusing because there are times in the Gospels where Jesus tells people to stop doubting. But I think what Chesterton means here is don't tell people to stop asking questions. Don't tell them to stop investigating things. Don't tell them to stop being curious. That's not the right method when someone has doubt. Instead, he says, it is rather the right method to tell him to go on doubting, 
to doubt a little more, to doubt every day newer and wilder things in the universe until at last, by some strange enlightenment, he may begin to doubt himself. I love that. Ask questions, G.K. Chesterton says. Ask lots of questions, in fact, and make sure you ask questions of yourself and your own beliefs too along the way. If you truly want to be an analytical, thinking, rational person, you have to be just as critical of your own belief system as you are of others. You have to be just as willing to consider that you might in fact be wrong as you are to consider that other belief systems you don't hold might be wrong. In fact, what's so interesting to me is that repeatedly in the Bible, it's not actually questions about faith that pose an obstacle to trusting in God. It's not having questions that are the obstacle. In the Bible, it's trusting yourself that's the obstacle. The obstacle to faith is actually that we inherently only trust in ourselves. Take a look at just a few examples of where I'm getting this from. Proverbs 28 verse 26 says this, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs 3 verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Jeremiah 9.23, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So make no mistake about it, the problem is not that we have questions. The problem is not that we ask questions. The problem is not that we wrestle with doubt. The problem isn't even primarily that we struggle to trust God at times. The problem at its core is that we tend to only ever trust ourselves. That's the obstacle to faith. Another way of putting that is that we all have faith of some sort. Every one of us has faith. So it's not so much that we need to learn what it looks like to have faith. It might just be that we need to shift what our faith is truly in. We need to move it from being in what we can accomplish, what we are capable of, what we know and what we understand and instead put our trust, put our faith in what God can accomplish, what he is capable of and what he knows and understands. We all inherently put our faith in something. The problem is that we are often most inclined to put our trust and our faith in ourselves. And can we just be real honest about that for a second? We end up failing ourselves pretty often, don't we? We end up letting ourselves down pretty frequently, do we not? I mean, how many times in your life have you been 110% positive that you were going about something the right way, that you were thinking about something the right way, that you were making the right decision, and then one to two years later realized, oh, that was 110% the wrong way to think about that. That was 110% the wrong way to go in that particular situation. Like, am I the only one that has so many letdowns when it comes to trusting in myself? So here's the invitation from Jesus. It's actually pretty simple. Trust in someone better than yourself. Put your trust, put your faith in someone better than yourself. Trust in someone who will not let you down like you will let you down. Trust in someone who will never, ever fail you. That's the answer. That's the way forward. That's what it looks like to walk by faith. Now, let me be very careful to say that does not mean that God will always do things the way that you would do things. 
That's not what that means. In fact, that's just a different version of trusting in yourself, right? So that doesn't mean that he always goes about things the way that we would go about it. But it is to say that if you're a follower of Jesus and you submit your life to him day by day, he will be with you and for you until the very end. Pastor Tim Keller says that God will always either give us what we asked for or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. That's the promise. That's how worthy God is of our trust. And if you ever doubt that God can be trusted with all of that. Here's the assurance that Paul gives us in Romans chapter eight, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Romans eight, Paul says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If ever we doubt that God can be trusted, the place we look is to the cross. That's where we look, followers of Jesus in the room. That's where we know that God can be trusted. If the God of the universe did not even spare his own son's life for our sake, then surely he can be trusted, right? If he could be trusted then, surely he can be trusted now. And surely he can be trusted even in the unexpected, even in the unideal, even when life is precisely not what we had hoped or expected. Surely still God is worthy of our faith if that's who he is, if that's who he's shown himself to be through Jesus. So let's just do this. In a few minutes, we're going to respond as we always do by singing, by taking communion, by giving our tithes and offerings like we do every single week. But before we do that, I just want to read some passages over you about God's faithfulness. I just want to read some verses from the Bible that show us how worthy God is of our trust. I pray that these will be encouraging to you in some way, shape, or form. If you have been discouraged lately because you don't know what it feels like to trust someone who will never let you down, I pray that these will be encouraging to you. So whatever you want to do, if you want to follow along with these on the screen, if you want to jot them down to dwell on later, or if you just want to close your eyes and just let them wash over you, whatever's most helpful for you to do. But I just want to read some things from the scriptures about how faithful God is and how worthy he is of our trust. First, in 2 Peter 3.9, it says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some, t- some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Lamentations chapter three, 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And lastly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let me pray for us. God, as we um, just sit for a second and think on and process on your faithfulness to us, God, we ask that you would help those words and those promises come alive in our soul. God, it's so easy to trust in um, our abilities, our accomplishments, our intellect, our reasoning. God, and, and sometimes you, you work through those things. And, but God, sometimes they just lead us so far down a road that we never imagined going. God, sometimes they make us so confident in us and how infallible we are instead of the truth, which is you and how infallible you are. So God, I, I don't know where every person is in this room. I don't know what they came in here wrestling with. I don't know what questions or doubts they have. But God, I, I pray that they would find you big enough and faithful enough and relational enough and compassionate enough to take their questions to take their doubts. And God, though you may not give us the answers right away or ever, God, you are worthy of our trust in the meantime. And so God, I, I pray that we would lean every single day, every single hour, every single minute, those of us that follow Jesus, that we would learn to lean on your faithfulness that is where we would find our rest, our confidence. God, we ask that you would show us who you are through your scriptures, through other people, through your spirit. And we, you would show us what you are capable of and who you are, and that we would worship you as a result. We ask all this in your name.